Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, who hopefully will have no microphone issues today. Well, I'm hoping. I'm not promising. We do apologise if Michael was inaudible in parts of the previous podcast. All I can say is everyone involved did their best. I'm sure nothing of great import was lost. I mean, that's true of podcasting as a genre. This is also true. So, we have got, uh, in the last episode I was saying I wanted to talk about a study that was done in in Bangladesh. It was a uh, really large-scale study of over 300,000 people involving uh, masks, mostly in looking at the impact of masks and different types of masks and all that stuff. Before we get into that, though, there were two other things I wanted to touch on. One is the government's new housing plan. But before we get into that, I thought we would have another discussion, Michael, of our patented political advice after things have gone wrong episodes. Is this a reference to the American writer and Jesuits? No, no. Although on political advice we have given, we didn't know we needed to do it at the time, but we will just now add to the list of things you shouldn't say. Do not say you would prefer your child was raped by Jesuits rather than educated by Jesuits, no matter how much you believe that to be true. That falls in very much, I would say, into the category of things you never felt you would have to say. It just didn't seem to be a likely problem that would present itself. But No, it's, it's, it's like seeing like a fork with do not ingest written on it. You look at it and go, who would ingest a fork? And then it happens once. Do not stick in your eyes. Yeah. And then you think, well, we should have put a sign on. But we didn't, and uh, someone did. Prominent US conservative did say that, uh, because it would have done less harm to their child. And we'll just add that to the list of just don't, just don't even start that conversation. In general, don't rank the things you would prefer to have happened to your child and put rape anywhere on that list. It's just, that's just political good sense. To the normies trying to explain how you were just insulting the Jesuits and it's no big deal. Difficult sell. Difficult. Difficult sell, yeah. From things that you you shouldn't say, though, Michael, to things you shouldn't do, and things probably no one thought to tell you that you didn't have to do on the assumption that you wouldn't do them. Right. If you are one of the politicians who has put in place quite stringent lockdown requirements which have stopped, shall we say, the live music and entertainment industry from functioning for 18 months, do not, do not go to a different country to attend a festival. So there is a, there's a picture doing the rounds, obviously, of uh, Leo. Now I saw this picture and I immediately assumed that it was fake. And The Independent is reporting it as being True. But Michael, I've still got to say, I've still just got this feeling that it could be fake for the simple reason it is too perfect of a bad story. Was this the picture which I've not seen, but I've been told, where he appears to have a digit intranasally located? Yeah, so it is a it is a picture taken at a British festival, the uh, Mighty Hoopla Festival in London, where Cheryl Cole is set to make her return to the stage as the Independent says. And uh, Leo Varadkar is apparently there, picking his nose, which is just not a good thing to have photographed. No. On the very weekend, Michael, Electric Picnic was cancelled. And I imagine, well, I say I imagine, I'm told by lots of people that, oh, people are very upset about the Electric Picnic being cancelled. It's a very big music festival for the young people, apparently. And, but can you clarify this for me? Because I, I, I knew it had been cancelled, obviously, way back when, you know, that kind of thing, nonsense, you couldn't go on with that. And then it, there was, will it go ahead, won't it go ahead? And then it didn't get planning permission or something. But is it accurate to say that it's not really the government that's not letting it go ahead? Well, I suppose the issue there is they'll say the reason the, the council, the, the local council, had the final say on it. Yes. But I'm sure the council would say they acted as required under the government's COVID-19 regulations. Yeah, and probably there wasn't a whole lot of time left anyway to get the thing organised in the kind of fashion that they would have needed. This has been reported in, I think, the Examiner, the Indo, and they're sharing this picture. I just, again, this seems to have come from a single source. Neither of them have quotes from Leo confirming he was actually there. And it's a perfect bad optic for Leo. So if it turns out to be fake later, we just graciously accept that. On the assumption it's real though, Michael, what the fuck? What kind of idiot just goes, I am being hounded by the live and music industry and what I'm going to do is, I and, and 
You know, we're pushing people to spend money in Ireland and not to travel unnecessarily and to take precautions. And I'm going to go to fucking London to attend a festival. I'm also in the middle of a whole big brouhaha about what, because I attend an event where it isn't absolutely clear if the regulations as they were understood widely were observed or they weren't observed. And people have drawn from that the conclusion that I am in some sense detached from the real the, the real experience day to day that pe- that ordinary people have. I don't really care and I'm above that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm just, I'm a king. I'm a king and I don't have to worry about these things. No, I'm talking perceptions. I'm not talking reality, whatever. We all know that he did, in fact, or somebody rang up the manager of the Marion Hotel, so they checked that it was legal or not. I don't want to assure that it was. But all this brouhaha is around me about attending an event like this. And in precisely the same time as people are being told, no, you can't go to your electric picnic. You go to a different country and you go to this, to a music event, and you think, it's hard to imagine that this is government business. And again, maybe it is. Maybe there is something that we haven't been told about this. And if there is, well, then fine, grand. It was government business. But like you say, it's the optics. No, if you have to come out and explain all the good reasons why it was okay for you to do this, you're lost again. You're explaining. Once you're explaining, you're losing. Nobody's listening to you. Nobody believes you anyway. So the, the examiner got a spokesperson for Leo to talk to them. And what he said, Michael was that Leo is currently in the UK on private time and such events are legal. Which is to say, I'm neither going to confirm nor deny that, but okay, yes, he is in London. And then, they said, festivals and concerts are permitted in Ireland from Monday. And the Tarnished is a strong supporter of the Irish events industry. Now, you might be shocked to hear, Michael, that the general response from people involved with the entertainment industry has not been recognition that he is a strong supporter of their sector (laughs) you amaze me also here's the thing if you have put in place laws that stop these things and in two days they're going to be legal you can go to these things after they're legal you don't immediately before they're legal tend one somewhere else Uh, you don't have to go abroad to do it I'm not saying any of this is fair, Gary. I'm not saying if it is even reasonable. I'm not saying that the man, if he's on his free time and he's in England, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to be in England, that you, when you're there, you, like the same as you might go to a show in the West End or you might go out to dinner in Gordon Ramsay's, you know, there's a festival on, you've been invited, why wouldn't you go? Perfectly reasonable thing to do. But considering the, the position you occupy and considering the atmosphere in the country and considering the electric picnic and considering Marianne and all of that, would somebody not have said, Leo, I don't think this is a good idea? Or more to the point, would not professional politician Taoiseach, Tarnish the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, not say to himself, Leo, I don't think that this is a good idea? I mean, for God's sake, Cheryl Cole, really? As you said, you know, for Wales, at least Wales has nice scenery, but for Cheryl Cole? The thing here is, you might say, it's right that Leo has his time off, that he can do what he wants. And the counterpoint to that is this. You are the leader of a political party. It is your job to get elected, but also to ensure as many people as possible associated with your political party get elected. And that means not damaging anyone and avoiding stories that could look bad for you. And the headline in The Independent is Tarnished Aliyah Varadkar faces criticism after being pictured at UK Music Festival on same weekend Electric Picnic was cancelled. The examiner has Varadkar pictured at Music Festival in London as Electric Picnic revelers stay home. Regardless of whether or not it was right or it was fine for someone in their private time to go to a festival, they look bad and they were absolutely foreseeable outcomes of attending which means you shouldn't do it purely because it reflects on Fine Gael. And they don't, they don't seem to get this. I don't disagree at all. I'm, I'm simply saying that if we were in some kind of perfect society where everybody is perfectly reasonable and, and logical and understanding, you might say, well, yeah, sure, it is what it is. But the fact is his job is politics. And politics is perception. And this is a... God, this is a really bad optic. This is going to really bad perception. And those two headlines that you just read are perfect examples of that. The contradistinction between Leo, big powerful man, leader of the, his party in a foreign country, 
whooping it up while people at home with their own little local festival can't go because of him. Him and the likes of him who won't let them. These are the news reports. There's going to be editorials in the next couple of days. There's going to be opinion pieces about how this shows his lack of regard for the hard-working people of Ireland who've given their all and, you know, they've, they haven't gone abroad, Michael, because they want to keep people safe and, and do what they can and they've been willing to take her and all that bullshit. Sure, sure. Regardless of whether or not they're true or not or they're fair or they're accurate, it's the type of shit you don't need. And it's entirely foreseeable that this would happen. And if that's the, that's the mainstream, I mean, we, we can only speculate and imagine what's going to happen when we come to social media. Get it. I, I don't get this government. I don't get why they do things. And I don't get why they actively seem to want to be removed from power. Well, I, okay, I get all that. But I t- I'll, put, I'll, I'll, get, I'll put in one more get on top of that. I don't get an administration which has employed so many people from the professional media world and none of them seem to have the capacity, the basic cop on, to be able to tell them, you know what lads, the way that's going to be reported in the papers will not make you look good. How many journalists have joined Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Greens and Slash? the government in the last few years? That's a rhetorical question, Gary. I'm not expecting you to answer with a number. But you know know what I mean? It's just been a steady stream. I I, I do want to make the point here. I I don't really care where Leo goes on a personal level. My annoyance, the, the, the entire annoyance I have about this story is that it's a stupid thing to do in his position and he shouldn't have done it based on how it looks and how the the newspapers are going to spin this. And there are still people in the newspapers who, shall we say, have not a vendetta, but are a little bit pissed off about some of the things Leo did, including the whole getting rid of Phil Hogan. And those people are going to use this to just put the knife in repeatedly. In synthesis, Gary, what you're annoyed at is not that he's done what he's done, but that this story exists at all. This is an utterly avoidable error in what has been an error-strewn fortnight. It, and avoidable errors. That's what makes you win a tennis match. That's what makes you win a football match. That's what makes you win in politics. You avoid the avoidable errors. And this is an utterly avoidable error. And he just, it's lucky he's seen the cow shit and he's walked right in it. I mean, he had to leave the country to find this mistake, though. Yeah. It's like they found every fuck-up they can find in the Republic and have now gone abroad. Like a friend of mine used to say, it's not that I mind that you, you get yourself in trouble, but do you really have to go out with a lamp looking for it? And it feels at times that this is Leo going out with a lamp looking for trouble. I, I just get the sense from this government and the people involved with it that everyone has just kind of given up. Like, there's just, like, ah, why not? Fuck it, do it. See what happens. I don't know. A, a young man I was talking to recently who is uh, working, shall we say, in that area said to me, I'm not sure. You have to remember, at the end of the day, he's relaxed enough about the whole thing. He knows he's gone on to a very nice job. It may be in Europe, maybe in the World Bank, maybe in the UN. But it's going to be a nice job. It's going to be well paid. It's going to be nice cars. What does he care? Now, I think that's actually wrong. I don't. I think it's excessively cynical. I think, Leo, any reasonable person wants to be perceived as being competent and functional at what they do and if everything goes right leo will be Taoiseach again and surely to god he wants to be Taoiseach again i mean that's the business he's in and that's the top job in the business he's in he doesn't even need to want to be Taoiseach. he just needs to want simon harris not to be Taoiseach. <laughs> he just has to stay alive basically uh, until his turn comes I just, I don't get it. Like, these people spend fortunes on media management and advisors, and no one thought. Like, I can see the internal debate of, ah, sure, like, it's fine. Like, Monday, no one will be offended by this. Like, the the indigenous people who we've shut down for 18 months aren't going to go ballistic about this. Sure, why would they care? And then, oh no, what's happening? Who could have seen this coming? You have to kind of say, well, most people, I would say. I'd say if you give this as a theoretical exercise to people and ask them, do you think people will be pissed off? You get a fairly accurate sample response. (laughs) Yeah, if it was a question A or B, should Leo A, do this, or B, not do this? 
I think you're going to hear a lot of bees. But listen, Gary, I'm sure this is not going to be the last time that this happens. So I think we should share up our contumely responses and our indignation for even more extravagant examples, which I'm sure the future holds for us. Just just as a last point on it. Yeah. I said, I don't really care about the story. I care that the story happened and it shouldn't happen. Yeah. But things like this, they have the potential to hurt. Not individually, but if you get a, just a repeated drum of them, the mood music starts to go sour pretty quickly. And it gives people an impression of you. Not coming from any one story, but just a general impression of your capabilities. And whether or not you're useful in any way. I, no, I don't disagree with you. I mean, to me, it, it, it's a much, much, I was going to say smaller story. It's a ridiculous non-story. But in compar- it's an issue, a, a little bit like the much, much bigger, horribler story of Afghanistan and Biden. The story there is not about Afghanistan, essentially. It's not about whatever. But it's, it's about the perception of whether or not you're a competent person who knows what you're at. Now, that's obviously a far grander and far more important at a global scale thing. But in this way, in, in, its, in a way, it's, it's not about the thing itself. It's about the perception of, conf- of competence. And this is just one more thing that just scrapes away the trust or faith, the faith that people might have in whether or not you're a competent person to run the country. Yeah, and you, that should be something you're thinking about. You don't even have to be the, the the leader of the party. You just need to be a politician. You should be concerned with both the image you put forward and the example you give to people by your actions and seek to mitigate or avoid bad news stories because it doesn't harm just you. It harms those associated with you. And that is your job, to get re-elected. And for all we have, this incredible group of people who go so far out of their way to avoid saying anything offensive or unpopular, then just bollocks up things like this in their personal lives. Hey-ho. Anyway, well, this is what professional politicians get you. Bring back dueling, I say. (laughs) Bring back the monarchy. God, can you imagine this doll if Andrew Jackson was in it? Ooh, a lot of people would lead. A lot of people would lead. So, the government's new housing policy. Housing for all, Michael. Housing for all, Gary. All of us. We're all going to get a house. There, there is some, there is some interesting stuff in this. Like their attempts to define what they think housing prices should be, what is affordable. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting. I mean, they've done it before, but they've mostly picked the numbers. Uh, shall we say, not as a fudge, but as a as something they can pin grants on. So that means you have to be careful. The figure doesn't get you know too close to reality because. Grants could be an issue then. The problem, of course, is that this plan is the long, the last, or the latest in a long line of plans. So we're going to have 300,000 new houses built by 2030. We have made promises to build many, many houses before, Michael. So there is, of course, an interesting question. If we will still be getting the houses from the old plans, like are they going to be on top of the 300,000? Or is everything being rolled into this now? And we're just to forget about those old ones. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's fairly confident we can assume that the old plans are gone to wrap tomorrow's fish and chips. This is the plan. The other thing I've noted about the plan, in parts from reading through it, is that plan indicates detail. Mm-hmm. You know, we will do this in this way, in this time frame. Whereas the housing for all is more of a here is a page description of one step of what we'll do. We'll have the we'll implement it in Q3 2022. Look for details then. Come back to us, lads. We'll tell you later. That's not really a plan. That's an aspiration. I think this isn't really even an aspiration, Gary. This is more a prayer. The real interesting thing here is the question of whether or not it would work. Well, I think one of the first things that you notice about it, it's very much backloaded. And I think that, that it's certainly, shall we say, in the medium term, that by itself is going to be a problem because it's going to be much easier to bring in the demand side solutions to this rather than at the same time matching it with the supply side. And if you look at the way the numbers are broken down, there, and that's a perfect, for, perfectly reasonable, I, 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 would, I would suppose, that it takes time to build up capacity and get your 
get the steam up and get the thing going. So the, 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 the larger number of houses are being built in the second half of the plan rather than the first half. But the problem with that is that if you haven't dealt with the supply issue and you're still dealing with a, with, with a highly constricted supply, but at the same time, you're increasing demand, you're, 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 you're helping out on the demand side. Previous experience of this, and not just in Ireland, but elsewhere, tells us that all that will do is increase the price. Unless you supply, if, if you help people to buy, in but you haven't increased the supply sufficiently to loosen the constriction on the market, well, then you're not going to do anything except increase the price. One of the ways you can look at a government plan and tell how likely this thing is to actually work is to look at how much effort they've put into costing it. Yeah. Plans that the government and the civil service want to push quite quickly, in general, are quite detailed. And you can kind of, let's I'll pick a good example, Michael. When I read the uh, the work on Slonchiker, I knew Slonchiker was never going to happen. Because if it was going to happen, they would have worked out how much it was going to cost. And there was nothing. There was no, not even a guesstimate, not even a throw a dart at a, at a dartboard attempt to put a cost on the thing. And one of the reasons, Gary, you and I know that is because if they had tried to do a, a guesstimate on how much it was going to cost, the answer would have come back a very, very lot. Anyway, so you look for the housing for all, and there is more detail than Slanchiker. We'll give them that. What isn't in it, though, is this. If you engage in a mass program of building, just a massive, they're talking about pumping 20 billion into a sector. If you take a sector and say, we're going to increase, uh, we're just going to pump 20 billion into it because we want so much more output. The immediate question becomes, what impact have you worked out that will have on the sector's costs? So what does that do to wages? What does that do to material costs? Are there enough people in this country to actually build what you want built? And have they factored in the potential increase in labour costs, material costs, land costs, and other associated costs? Have they built those, the increases that this plan would potentially cause into the plan? Or are the prices, shall we say, static at starting point? Are they making assumptions about price stability that maybe would not are not justified on the basis of the effect that this plan itself is going to have on prices within the sector? No, no, of course they don't, Michael. But here's a, an interesting one that uh, I thought you might like. So they're talking about the new houses and uh, going to be three hundred thousand to two thousand and thirty. That's six thousand affordable homes uh, a year for local authorities, those kind of things. And then they point out that um, they're going to increase the contribution by developers under Part V, the uh, affordable homes provision, from 10% to 20%. Now, here's a funny thing. If you have a certain amount of money you want to make off a project, and someone takes a section of your stock away at a lower cost... But you still want to make the same amount of money? You'll put up the cost of the rest of the stock. And because this plan comes with what they call a bridging mechanism, so if you were a first-time buyer who couldn't afford a house between your deposit and the mortgage based on the lending criteria that's been established by the government and the central bank, well, they're going to engage in this bridging exercise so that you can afford it, which is to say they're going to create a mechanism through which prices can increase substantially, but buyers will still be able to hit that target where they legally wouldn't have been before. We've done this before, Gary. We've done exactly this before. And we had exactly the same result as we had this time. When you have this X number of people chasing X amount of stock, and you just you increase the amount of ca- the, the amount of money available to the people chasing the good that they're chasing, but you, the, the competition level remains fundamentally unchanged then the price of the good that they're chasing will go up until you have equalized and taken the prescriptions on the supply the competition for the good nothing that you do on the demand side will do anything except increase the price it's really jesus not complicated gary i didn't notice and maybe i just missed it because you know it's a very long and complicated plan as you said so full of detail 
have they attempted anywhere here to look at the government-related costs of a house build that go into the total build cost that build that that builders that builders carry, and seeing if there's anywhere where the government can actually reduce that cost. And that's an interesting question, Michael, because when you break down, the listener may not never thought of this really, because why would you? When you break down the cost of a house, you have three different sections broadly. You have the land, which depending on where it is, can be very expensive. Then you have the actual build cost and finish things like that. Finish is a big one, actually. Finish can just really just drive the cost up astronomically. And then you have the charges, the taxes, the professional fees, the various regulatory obligations that you have. Now, part of that will impact on building cost as well. But to an extent, you can draw it out and make it its own thing. And if you look at those costs on their own, they are somewhere in the region of kind of 42 to about 52% of the total cost of a house. But the interesting thing about it, Michael, is that the government can, to some extent, influence the price of land without interfering terribly in the market, because again, there's taxes and things like that. Yeah. Material also very difficult for the government to get involved with. Labour costs very difficult for the government to get involved with at a certain level. But the one area where it's very easy to get involved with is that kind of misc there that's about, you know, 40 to 50% of the total bill cost. And it's the area that successive Irish governments have just decided they don't want to go near. So no, there's nothing in this document about this. So you're saying the single largest cost component to building a house and zero interest in anything the government might do to reduce that cost component? Well, when we say single largest cost component, it depends on the build and it moves over time. So it could be, as I said, 42 to 52 is generally the estimates I've seen, and it can include various professional fees. So we're not saying it's it's absolutely going to be the majority. There will be bills where it will be the majority. Though. Well, Gary... If if you take if you take the fact that the land is going to cost X and that's one part what that's one component, then there's the cost itself. Now unless okay, if you're building an extremely large, extremely fantastic house on a piece of very, very cheap land, well then it may be but even then you're going to have to look at a, a scenario where the the house build is forty whatever percent of the cost and the, the land cost is ten percent or something or less. Most cases the cost of the land, the cost of the build, the single largest individual component, not saying the majority of the cost, but if you break it into three separate things, the single largest lump of those three is most likely going to be uh, government-related charges. And if it's over, if it's 50, at 52%, well, then obviously it's going to be the largest because it's, it's an actual majority. Anyway, whatever it is, Gary, it's a very, very large component of cost of houses. And... They're not even curious to see if something could be done there. No, they're they're, they're not. Which is odd, because the government will often bring in third parties to advise them on this. Sometimes they're a consultancy group, sometimes they're individuals, depending on, I was going to say, the knowledge those people have, but generally who the government likes and the answer they want to get. But not all the time. And successive governments have been told in detail here are the things that you can possibly change about the cost of building. And here are things that could be an issue, but you have limited ability to do. Here, you know, here are the levers you can pull, basically. And they've had no fucking interest. I know we're, for regular listeners, they recognise that we're kind of replowing land, which has been plowed before, because it's something I've said that I'm sure before. But if we look at the report that Ronan, the analysis that Ronan Lyons did on house build costs and we're now talking a few years ago gary i mean it's not up to date and i say that not because these the 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 element of these costs government related costs regulation related costs have declined they have not declined they have increased it was his opinion based on that and not on plucking it out of his arse but that the cost increase on an individual house an individual dwelling was between 30 to 50000 euro per unit and that's on regulation that was 
introduced in the period directly after the crash up to up to then not all regulation he's not talking about all regulation but that was an increase in the cost of the build between 30 to fifty thousand. We we talked about this before, Michael. The last time the government brought up the energy ratings, we already we're already top of the table on the energy rating of Irish homes. They brought it up. They congratulated themselves, and then when we asked about it, they were like, "Oh, we think this is going to increase build costs by." I actually can't remember the figure. Let's say ten thousand. Just I, I I can't remember, but we'll just pick it as a figure. And then they just congratulated themselves, and you had to look at them and go, in the middle of a housing crisis. You have increased building costs and you're congratulating yourself. In an area where we were already leading the developed world, they decided to make it even better to the extent that it increased cost by thousands of euro. And that was okay. That wasn't an issue. Didn't. Didn't cop it. And now we have the issue of. It, it reminds me of the, the British retrofitting plans. Mm hmm. Where they. They put out these plans of how many houses were going to be retrofitted in order to make them a you know, world leader in uh, energy efficiency and therefore mitigate the the harm the country did to the environment. And no one ever worked out, do we have enough people in this country to actually do this? And it turned out, no, they didn't. But a civil servant somewhere worked out that, well, it costs this much and that's probably bearable. So we'll say we can do it. I never thought, hang on, there's actual, this isn't just numbers. This is an actual sector. There are things that happen here and there are inputs, such as how many fucking people work in it. Yeah, there are actual carpenters and electricians and things which would be required to affect this. And uh, maybe we don't have enough. Somebody also did, didn't someone do a timeline on the basis of the number of people that were available uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the British workforce? And if they're going to do it from a point, like a standing still point, aware that there are people actually involved in doing their job. It's not that every single person in the building industry in England was going to stop everything they were doing and just go and do retrofitting. Although that seemed to be the implication. That if they were, and it was going to take a very, very, very long time to achieve this retrofit. It's so much so that by the time they'd achieved the retrofit, they were going to be going to years behind in whatever the technology would be at that time. Are and the standards that probably would be expected to be in, in, in vigour by the time you got to the, the end point of the whole process. So, yeah, these things are, are decided, but sometimes they're not, shall we say, not worked out in great detail. No. So the plan has, it, it, we've complained before, the previous plans have all been demand-led. And for, for listeners who may not be aware of that, when looking at economic problems, there's generally two sides you can look at it. The supply side which is generally how do we increase the amount of that thing on the assumption that increasing the supply will bring uh, the price down or cause some sort of stabilisation in the market. Mm -hmm. And the demand side, which can be, well, how do we regularise demand or how do we drive demand up? Basically, how do we make more people want to buy this thing? And we've had successive plans that have looked at increasing demand. And the theory there was, well, demand will go up and that will get more people into uh, the building trade and more developers will be interested to it, and that demand will create its own supply, is the saying associated with it. And that went fucking nowhere. In fact, it made things a lot worse. Demand, the idea that demand creates its own supply may have some validity to it, but the problem is here that it doesn't take into account the nature of, shall we say, the artificial obstacles that might exist within the marketplace for the supply to be created by the demand. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And all right, I was a bit down on it there, but the actual explanation of why it did not work the way it was intended is that there are artificial lags in the market. That you can increase demand, but it takes time for the market to then supply. So even if someone looked at the increased demand and went, you know what, I'm going to build more houses, they then need to build those houses. And because it's Ireland, that can take a very long time. And you can bottleneck yourself where demand keeps going up, but no one has had time to actually build anything. And in you, if you do that, the market will go haywire. Also, if you build a plan which is based around the market building in a certain kind of way, in a, with a certain kind of mix of product to a certain diversity of uh, customer base, and just assume that all that will work with perfect in a perfect equilibrium, 
but then the people who actually do it say, well, no, actually, that won't work. That might work fine on a piece of paper. But the reality is when you put that to the people in the market, they won't want that product as you have designed it. They're not going to react like this. There's always an assumption, and this is not just in this case, but in so many things that we've seen over the years, whether it's minimal color pricing or whether it's vaping or any kind of nudge activity regarding sin taxes. There's the assumption that the people for whom this is being done or to whom it's being done will be passive actors, that they will behave exactly like the government planners expect them to behave. And it comes as an awful shock to them to discover that people aren't actually like that. One of the uh, one of the interesting reports I read, I think this was 2018, it was trying to analyse the Irish construction market. And it came to the very surprising realisation that our construction costs aren't actually that high. They, they were, at the time, they were solidly middle of the road. Now, I don't know what the movement has been like since then, particularly over COVID. And then they were trying to figure out, like, if our construction costs aren't so high, what is happening here? And the answer they came to was that, well, it's primarily two things. It's the cost of land and it's taxation. So government and um, government, actually. <laughs> and you might say, well, how does the government deal with the price of land? How are they involved in that? There's ways that they can, uh, they, can, uh, they can deal with it. One of the reasons why local authorities can say that they build houses for so cheap is that they just use their own lands. So they don't yeah. have that cost. But also... When you look at the planning system, if you have a planning system that says you can build, let's say, the, the optimal kind of height that people tend to want in nice cities, and that most of the developers I've talked to have said they would like to do as well, five to seven stories. Yeah. That kind of range. If you can do that, and you can build nice apartments in each one, well, you get more out of land. The per unit price of land is substantially lower. Whereas if you can only build, you know, a two-story semi-detached on that land because that's the only thing you can get planning permission for. Well, you're in a whole different ballgame. Did you see the figures that were published there? Was it last week, week before, on the percentage of the population that lived in apartments in the EU? And we are way down. I mean, in comparison to countries up at the top, like uh, Spain, Italy, and other places, we are like from up at the top. It's like sixty, seventy percent. Something we're down. I honestly can't remember, but it was something like five percent. And yet, if we persist, if we persist with the idea that building over three stories is high rise and will destroy the skyline of the city, whatever the city is, whether it's Limerick, Cork, Galway, or Mullingar, or let alone Dublin, God, the skyline of Dublin, how could you do that? Seven stories, madness. But if we persist in this notion, we're never going to move on. We're always going to have this ghastly sprawl, which mitigates against proper supply of all kinds of services. I'm not just talking the usual stuff like trains and tra public transport where you need density to, in order to have a reasonable system where you're not having a stop every two miles or 10 miles, but rather stops within reasonable distance. Where I lived, which where I lived in Milan was exactly what you described, Gary. The buildings around where I lived were all in and around seven stories. Some maybe a little bit higher, maybe the odd one would be a little bit lower. But that was the kind of density. And I could, you could walk between tram stops and bus stops. I don't think there was any tram stop around me which wasn't, which was more than a 10 minute walk. So you had proper infrastructure, but more than that, when you get that kind of density, you have people living above, but on the ground floor, you have restaurants and bars and shops, greengrocers, pizzerias, bakeries, whatever it is, that you actually have a real living, livable community where people can live where they are. They don't have to travel miles to supermarkets. They don't have to go away to get what they have. And they can actually have stable communities within cities. What I've quite enjoyed is that one of the arguments for why Ireland builds out, doesn't build up, is that, um, well, Dublin is a low-rise city and you've got to protect that. And I remember looking before, a couple of years ago, at Paris and London, and Paris particularly is a low-rise city, would be considered to be. It doesn't have that many um, terribly tall buildings by international standards. It's got some quite spectacular ones in some cases. But in general, the city is seven stories, apartments. Yeah, it's not Chicago, not New York. Paris has a population density twice that of Dublin per square kilometre. London, five times greater and the problem, as you said, the problem there is if you just keep building out, you never have this 
there's density that makes it viable to do things like you know really good public transport systems things like that or or you can have small community centers you can have all of this sort of stuff because there's enough people living there if you keep building out in infinitely well then you just end up with sprawl miles and miles of sprawl where at no point is it viable to do anything else and by the way, as it regards our dear friends the Greens and their their constant war against the car, you make it much, much more difficult to get people off cars. Of course, yeah, because it's just awful. Like Dublin's public transport is terrible. Absolutely terrible. Well, actually, our public transport in general is terrible. But no, the, the plan has... It is, as written, it's a bit of a shit show, I think. I, I, I don't think anything. The one thing that does make me think maybe they can pull it off is because Finna Fáil have a lot riding on this. Oh, they do. Like, if they could pull this off, then maybe they'll claw some of their way back. But it's, as you said, Michael, it's backloaded. And that usually means in politics, we don't want to be around when we have to pay for it. But in this particular instance, it also has the issue that, well, the Finna Fáil Taoiseach is gone soon. And then it's Fine Gael. Yeah. So if there is any short-term improvement... Well, do you get any benefit from that? Or is it just going to go to Fine because they'll be in power? It also seems to me at the end of the... We can talk about lots of different ways you could approach this problem. The fact is that this is now a problem with... The, I don't think there is any simple solution to the Irish housing problem now. This is a combination of two things. First of all, you know the old joke, and I've said this before, about the man who stops in Kerry and asks, what's the... What's the how would I get to Tralee from here? Yeah, well, I w- if I was... If I was going to Tralee, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go from here. We should, whatever you want to do, Gary, this, where we are now is a bad place to start from. This was something that had its roots going back, back to the crash and the period five, six years after the crash when we just simply stopped building. And at the same time as we stopped building, we increased the cost of building massively. And then that manifested itself and all the problems whatever about that frank knight you know frank knight the famous chicago the economist from the university of chicago who's regarded as sort of one of the fathers of the chicago school unlike say milton friedman and others in the chicago school frank Wright didn't believe that the market operated with perfect efficiency frank Wright believed that the market could operate with inefficiencies but he he then similarly said it while it may be inefficient it's always going to be more efficient than anything that the state sector do, will do when it tries to solve problems because of the inefficiencies of the market. And I, I, I just have a horrible suspicion that that's where we are, Gary, that people are looking at the, the fa- shall we say, market failures. And I use that first phrase in inverted commas because I think that in a situation like this, this isn't effectively because the market has failed, but rather the market has been squeezed and knotted and pushed and tied in such a way that this is where the market is brought, that we have been brought to. This is the point we have arrived that we wouldn't have in, in other circumstances, but this is where we are. And in some sense, this is a belief, oh, well, what we can do is we can address the inefficiencies that the market has using our clever plan. And it, Using the old quote, sorry, you know the, that the old everybody's heard him a hundred times. You know, you know Winston Churchill. He talked about capitalism and liberal democracy. He said it's the worst system in the world for governments, except for all the other systems we've tried. And I would say that's the, the reality when it comes to house building in Ireland. It, we may be in a bad place. When saying, oh well, it may feel a bit like a surrender. Just saying, ah well, we'll just have to leave it up to the market and let the market sort it out. But my suspicion is that what we're actually going to do is just make things worse. And we're going to make it worse at a very significant cost. Yeah, we, we, I mean, people talk about, you know, what are we going to do? Do nothing and let the market take its course. And you do have to sort of go, well, no, because in order to do nothing, we would have to remove quite a lot of what's been done already. We'd have to peel back layers of regulations, increased costs to actually get to a point where that could happen. Now, I strongly advocate that when we talk about this talk of increasing efficiencies by removing the private markets when i've talked to people who've been involved in state projects state construction projects they've said that one of the major costs that have arisen during it have been delays and issues caused by the state so if we have state projects and they're building 20 billion worth of houses how much of that is lost to inefficiency in the state itself? How much would the, would 
that have been worth it built by the private sector? Do we lose 10%? Do we lose... I don't know. I, I'm, I don't have the required amount of information in this field to know that. But I would say, look at the children's hospital. The state doesn't do well at large-scale infrastructural uh, projects in Ireland. It used to. It may once again. But do you honestly look at this current government, Michael, and be like, these are the people who have the will to implement something like that and just ride roughshod over the people who are going to try and stop them and the various things that are going to be thrown at them and just get it done. No, but also, isn't there underneath all of the stuff that's been going on regarding the, the regulation of house building, etc., the same kind of problem that we've seen, for example, with the management of the pandemic. I was having a conversation with somebody recently and I was saying, you know, if you were to boil down into an overly simplistic definition of what is what economics is, I would say it's ultimately it's it's the analysis of trade-offs in human activity. And if you look at, say, for example, issues around, say, heat efficiency or safety or build quality or materials or professional fields or whatever it is. If you were to say to somebody, you're going to the government and say, actually, we want to get rid of the, that legislation that in, increased the, the, the requirements for material qualities here or finish levels here or heat efficiency or here, whatever. What you'd be saying is, they'll say, no, we, we can't. We're not going to be responsible for lowering the quality of houses and housing available to the Irish people. You know the language that was being used and is being used about the 1,600 houses or rather apartments proposed to be built in Drumcondra, Glasnevin, where they're talking about these are the new tenements. You know, there's an example that they're talking about. It's like, oh, we're going to go back. But you, and you know the point you've, you've often made, Gary, about, say, energy efficiency. And you say, but you know what? In the end, over an extended period of time, you'll actually make the money back. You will save that because you will have saved on your energy consumption. And that may be true and that may be a good thing. But the problem, as you have pointed out, is that's backloaded. That's that's something you will have when you have your house. You've paid for it and bought it and built it and lived in it for 30 years. The problem is I'm here now and I want to buy a house. And this has increased the cost of my house by this degree and has made it such that I can't now afford. So there's a trade-off. What I'm saying is... The quality and the price issue, the tenements, we're not telling them, but the bed sits. That was an example of a trade-off. That they it is not, they, and they decided in their wisdom, the politicians, it was not acceptable for people to live in these conditions, these terrible squalid bed sits. So they banned them, and they didn't consider the trade-off side of what that meant, of what you were going to lose. No, I mean we yes we we do have a government that was very fond of the idea that they should legally limit the max any person should be able to get from a bank and a mortgage, and then they should push up the initial cost of housing because you'd make it back over the long term. And didn't think those two ideas clashed at all. There was no trade off. There are no trade offs. There is only this utopian platonic idea. This is the good, and we must not comp not even the good rather more to the point. This is our movement towards the perfect and nothing must compromise that anyway i think the other thing about this is they're saying they're, they're giving figures but then you have to sort of go what are you going to count as a new build what are you going to count as a retrofit how are you going to measure these things because it might surprise you to know michael that in relation to how new builds are measured do you think it'd be a very simple thing there are multiple ways of counting it because no one has bothered to actually centralise it yet. And the government has sometimes presented figures, Michael, uh, using things like ESB connections, where let's say houses that were left fallow and then were connected to a ESB connection were counted as new bills, despite the fact that they were, in some cases, quite old. And that data can be really easily misrepresented. But I, I think with this, a lot of it is going to come down to how it's actually going to be in practice and they've released seven or eight documents on this so far but a lot of it is just coming later coming later here's roughly what we're going to do here's a basic costing and we'll get to it later and maybe 
when those things are actually fleshed out and it's all put together and it clicks together, it's going to be something greater than the, the sum of its parts. But when you look at it and you see some of the things they're talking about or increasing the amount of rent pressure zones, things like that, it just doesn't seem like this is in hand. So just, I, I, that took slightly longer than anticipated because I think we got slightly more annoyed than anticipated. <laughs> so we'll just, yeah. we'll just uh, very briefly to discuss this new study. I'll put a link to it in the bottom of this podcast. Uh, if you're into the actual studies, it's, it's a very good one. What it was, was they basically, a, uh, <laughs> the study is called The Impact of Community Masking on COVID-19, a cluster randomized trial in Bangladesh. There are many authors because this thing is big. It's a yeah. big study. Now, that's actually one of the papers that came from it. There's other papers that have come from it and they're working on other papers because the study was simply so large that you know, you're going to be pulling research from this thing for God knows how long. And basically, they did a randomized trial of community-level mask wearing and mask promotion in rural Bangladesh. Now, what that meant was they got... 600 villages in Bangladesh, with 342,000 people between them, split them into a a control group where they did nothing and an intervention group. Now, you're talking about a control group of about 163,000 people. Massive, massive things. And basically, they wanted to find out two things. What can we do to increase levels of mask wearing in this population? But the second thing they wanted to find out is what is the actual impact on the ground in the community, at the community level, of mask wearing? And what are the what's the impact of different types of masks? Some communities and some households got surgical masks. Other communities got other types of masks. And then they put people, plainclothes investigators, into the communities to just watch them. And made sure they were never the people who'd given them masks. I, I think ethically, you would never have gotten this done in Europe or the West because they would have said, you want a control group of nearly 200,000 people that you're not going to give masks to. And then you want to watch them. There are all sorts of issues here that I think that had you tried to run this in Germany or Ireland or some Finland, they'd just, no, sorry, no. You wouldn't have got it past the university board, ethics board, to do this. Even the observations. Now, again, the observations, they, they were very careful. They removed all identifying characteristics. They made sure that the, the observers who were planted in the villages hadn't been involved in the distribution of masks in that village or any of the villages nearby. I mean, it was, it was well done. It was well designed. I will often go off on studies, not because of their results, but just because... The methodology is garbage. These guys might not be right, but they put the work in. Like, they spent millions on this. I don't even know what size of a team you would have needed to do this. But we are talking exceptional effort. Now, on the mask wearing side of things, they were able to bring mask wearing from 13% to 42% over an eight-week period. In the intervention group. In the intervention group, which is interesting and as I said, there is a different paper which looks purely at that and how they did it. And the most interesting part of that for me was that nudges those little, where you design a system basically to push people towards proper behavior uh, without them realizing that they're being manipulated. They just fucking failed. They didn't, they did not work at all. That was very interesting. Yeah, it was. Of the nearly 300,000 people in the region of 27, 28,000 people ended up with symptoms of COVID. And they collected blood tests from about 10,000 of them. But that's the thing, right? I mean, it was 10 to 15,000, I think, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was I think it was 10,900 and something. But like that in itself, Gary, They look, when I looked at this first, I thought, okay, they have the people who have COVID symptoms. Uh, uh, and for that, they, they tell you everything they do, by the way. Nothing is... So... You say, what are COVID symptoms? And they say, the COVID symptoms we used were those symptoms which were defined by the WHO as being indicative of somebody with a symptomatic case of COVID. So we know, you can go off and look at the WHO website and that will tell you precisely. And at a couple of points, they go, listen, this is how we measured it. And these are the issues with that. But this is why we did it. Because, you know, if you want to measure how many people in public are actually uh, socially distancing, you need to pick a distance, basically. 
and you need to just stand there and watch them. And that's the way you do it. Then I thought, well, then, so there's people they, they listed as COVID because they were symptomatic. And then there were other people they took, for, they were testing for what they called uh, seropositivity or zero pre, uh, seropositivity to test seroprevalence in the, in the population. And I thought there too. But no, they took blood from thousands of people and sent it back to Seattle. I mean, this was that was pretty good. I mean, that in itself, like that's a hell of a lot. And they and they also go through this very long description of exactly how they got took the blood samples, right down to the the, the like to the to the the bore of the needle that they used to extract the 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 capillary blood, capillary blood, wasn't it? Rather than venous or arterial blood, it was capillary blood. It, it, and anyway, I suppose we should we talk about the actual results there. So, what they in general found. Uh, was that when you looked at the um, the intervention side, which is the people where they went in, they gave masks to them, and they promoted mask wearing, and mask wearing went up to about 40-something percent. When you got to the end of it, about 7.62% of people in the intervention group had COVID-like symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it was about 862 in the control group. So what they're able to tell from that is that Masks at a community level do have an impact, but they're also able to break that down by age group. And that's actually where there's some really interesting stuff. Sorry, Gary, before we go on, just to make the point, when you hear that, say, 7%, 8%, people say, oh, it's only 1% of difference, but it's not 1% difference. It's a 10% difference, or it's actually 11% difference in this case, because that's the differential in the pop- when you take the, it within the population. So that it, it is a more substantial than it sounds. The end, when you, as you say, it really becomes interesting when you break it down for age, which was how they primarily, they, they, to, they tried to do some gender, but they principally looked at men for, again, they say why, pretty good reasons, because of the, the country they were doing it in and the cultural practices and effective capacity for observation and stuff. So, but it's mostly, but they, they did attempt more, more significantly to break it down uh, on an age basis. They did actually one point there, just before we get to the age basis, the mask uh, point. And what they they say here is that cloth masks can likely reduce the symptoms of COVID-19. But when you actually look at the number of people who are getting infected, they had a, they couldn't say it was zero, but they said it's not statistically significant. There may be an impact there, and it may be positive, but it is not, it's not measurable, basically at the scale we're doing it. So that I thought was particularly interesting. Uh, that, you know, cloth masks, maybe symptoms less, not going to stop you from getting COVID though. But if you get it, less severe, so you can ask, you know, you can question the value there. But yeah, Michael, the, the age stuff I thought was particularly interesting. People under 40 didn't really seem to have much of an impact at all. I mean, there was, in people under 40-year-olds, there's a decrease but it's not, there's no statistically significant decrease. And even 40 to 50 year olds at wearing surgical masks, there was no statistically significant decrease. But then you get to the 50 to 60 year olds and there's a decrease of 23%. And then you get to the 60 year olds and there's a decrease of 34%. And I just, I'm really curious about what the mechanism is there. Yeah, it's, it's very curious. And they, they they make the point that uh, now they go on to make the point that and I think this again is important. I'm quoting here: that the result should not be taken to imply that masks can only prevent ten percent of COVID cases, let alone ten percent of COVID mortality. The intervention include, induced twenty nine more people out of every hundred to wear masks, with forty two percent of people wearing masks in total. Just parenthetically there they also mentioned that the the numbers of people wearing masks did not not did not uh, attenuate because if you compare the number of people wearing masks at the beginning of the uh, the observation at the end eight weeks and then 10 weeks i think it was like 98 percent continuing continuation right so it was very very high stick but um, they make the point that so because the 42 percent that with 42% of people wearing masks, the total impact of near universal masking, which they say perhaps achievable with alternative strategies or stricter enforcement, may be several times larger than our 10%. 
Additionally, the intervention reduced symptomatic seroprevalence more when surgical masks were used and even more, and this is the big thing, the kicker I think for all of us, for the highest risk individuals in our sample. 23% for those 50 to 60 and 35% for 60 plus. These numbers likely give a better sense of the impact of our in intervention on severe morbidity and mortality, since most of the disease burden is borne by the elderly. Where achievable, universal mask adoption is likely to have still larger effects. Because, of course, it is precisely those people, the people over 50 and then especially people over 60, that are of the greatest concern. Because, as you said before, Gary, the number one factor by a distance uh, for COVID, for severity of COVID, is age. Yep. It's it's actually one of the the odd things I've thought about government message, messaging about COVID. The number one thing is age. Nothing you can do about your age. The number two is weight. Obesity is, 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 well, sorry, it's been a couple of months since I checked those figures. It's possible it's been overtaken by something else, but it was a strong second place. And you would think that you'd have the government out going, you know, lads, put down the fork and go for a jog. This is a public health message. Yeah, but Gary, that's a public health message that they've been doing for 50 years. Yeah, but you see, now you, now you get to do it and go, do it or you may die. And I think that would just motivate people in a way they're not normally. I I don't know because that's the same message as being you know being fat we just increases your chances of dying across a whole range of issues. But anyway, listen, that's but we as a fact we can put it out there and say that obesity is a is number two factor. I know I I actually think it would have worked this time, and for this very simple reason, in times of disorder, people strive to feel that they are in control of whatever they can feel in control of. So if you tell people you can do this and it absolutely can change your risk of suffering an adverse reaction from COVID-19. At the start, like in the early days, I think you would have been able to get people to go to it strongly. Now it's just like COVID is for many people kind of fading into the background and you won't get that effect. But I think there was a period. This is the largest study of this that I have seen ever done. It is immensely detailed. A great deal of work was put into it. It may not be right, but... There's enough methodological detail there and enough work that went into it that if it's not right, people are going to find out pretty quickly because they'll just run the figures. And if it's not right, someone wasted millions of dollars. I mean, there are lots of things that are interesting about this, leaving aside the obvious stuff. For example, here it says, the trial results also highlight many factors that appear inessential. We find no evidence that public commitments, village-level incentives, text messages, altruistic messaging, or verbal commitments changed mask-wearing village-led incentives or or their mask-wearing behaviours. I think that's interesting. All of that stuff that we've been doing doesn't appear to have had any, in this case, in Bangladesh, in villages, doesn't appear to have had any effect on behaviour. Also, it's curious, they also, and this again is not central to the thing. I thought it was in, do you notice that they talk about social distancing? And one of the issues they wanted to address was whether or not the concern was valid that mask wearing would reduce people's sensitivity to, to danger. In other words, that it would produce more risky behaviors. And by observing, they, they observed social distancing with, with mask wearing and not mask wearing. And say, for example, in market situations, they found there was very little statistical difference between people wearing masks and people not wearing masks on how they conducted their social distancing when in in the market. On the other hand, I thought, again, curious, when it came to the mask, there was no difference. There was no social distancing at all. And they speculate that this may come from a long established cultural practice that when praying in the mask, that you do so literally shoulder to shoulder. But they, it's, they seem to there seem to be fairly strong indications that the idea that mask wearing will produce more risk, more risky behaviour just isn't doesn't seem to be the case. But there are all sorts of interesting things, and as you say, I mean, it may be wrong. But on the, I think one of the interesting things about this for me was trying to understand the point that they were making. Others have been making. If we look at say some of the studies out of Japan and out of Denmark, what they have looked at are differentials between individual mask wearers. You know. I couldn't understand why it was the case that you could have all these studies which said that for an individual mask wearer and an individual non-mask wearer, there didn't seem to be really much much difference in in the outcomes. 
But they looked at this at a community-wide basis and in a very large sample. I mean, this, as a study, Gary, I mean, there are very few studies you're going to see that are going to be done like this with these kinds of numbers, with a control, a control like 170, 60, whatever it is, thousand people. But they've shown that those very marginal differences that may be missed in an individual comparison study, when you amplify them across a community, actually become substantial differences. No, I remember this was something we were talking about um, way back when the public advice was still don't wear masks because they'll kill you. And then it was becoming wear a mask to protect yourselves. And we were discussing that um, the point of a mask, it may protect you, but the actual impact of it is that you're primarily wearing it to protect others if you were ill. And the community effect of that makes it far less likely then that um, you will pick it up from someone else. But that's not actually the primary. I mean, that's the outcome everyone wants, but that's not the primary mechanism through which you're developing it. It's not through protecting yourself. But that's the end game. You end up actually protecting yourself by it, which is why people were saying things like, well, why should healthy people wear masks or asymptomatic people for that point? It's the community level that you're actually looking at. But I know, as I said, we will put a link to it below. There is a ton of stuff on it. As I said, there's, there's at least two of these studies out already i have a feeling there's going to be many more out of it and um that's even if it's wrong it's a very impressive piece of work provided they didn't bollock up something really fundamental yeah and they may have done but and i'd also say to anybody who's listening and thinking eh, it's readable oh yeah no no it is anyway um on that point and i just recommend you do have a read of it because i think it's worth having a look at we shall be back on Wednesday, I believe. We should indeed. All things being equal. Until then, wear your masks, it seems the world is from Bangladesh. But surgical masks. All the best.